Today on Inland Journal and the Inland Journal podcast, we'll meet Nick Deshay, the new Inland Northwest correspondent for Public Radio's Northwest News Network. You'll hear him a lot on our airwaves. We'll revisit part of an interview with two members of a group that's revisiting some of its previous recommendations for reforming Spokane County's criminal justice system. And we'll hear about regional libraries that have decided to abolish fines for materials that are returned late. But first, Washington State University researchers say people in low-income neighborhoods are more likely to die prematurely, that is, younger than 65, than people who live in more affluent neighborhoods. That seems to be a rather intuitive discovery, and Dr. Pablo Monsivias concedes that. Monsivias is part of a team of WSU College of Medicine researchers looking at, among other things, how people's physical environments affect their health. When we got into this work, we're interested in health disparities, and one way to measure health disparities is to look at uh, differences in when people die, how early they die, because premature deaths are largely preventable, and so they're happening needlessly. Those are things we could have prevented. So we had the hypothesis that those early deaths or premature deaths would be happening more often in people who are coming from poor communities in Washington state and also people of color. Monsivias and his team studied the records of everyone who died in Washington between 2011 and 2015. That's nearly a quarter of a million people. Those deaths are linked to an address, so the address of the person who had, where they had been living up to the point where they passed away. And we linked those deaths to the communities where the person had been living previously. And then we classified the communities according to a level of deprivation that accounts for things like poverty, um, unemployment rates, and also things like housing um, quality and overcrowding. And so that allowed us to essentially get some context of what these people were coming from. And we also had information on things like their race um, and their um, educational level, other demographic characteristics, and then also important for this study, their racial classification. So with that information, we were able to then look at how and when people died, uh, at what age, and link that to their communities and their racial group. They found nearly one-fourth of all deaths in Washington during those five years were premature, again, younger than 65. And then they broke the rates down into ethnic groups. 22% of whites died prematurely, 24% of people of Asian descent, Nearly 44% of blacks passed away early, as did half of American Indians and Alaska Natives, and 55% of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. People who are considered multiracial had a more than 47% premature death rate. Monsivias' team also found disparities along economic lines. To give you an example, um, if you're white uh, and you're coming from a more affluent community in Washington, 19% of the deaths in that group are premature. If you're white and from a deprived community, it doubles. It's 40% of those deaths happen prematurely. But if you're black and coming from a community that is uh, deprived, the chances that your death is premature is over 50%. So these numbers basically tell us that, um, that race and place importantly, the kind of deprivation that you experience can both play an important uh, role in the chances that you die prematurely from things like heart disease and cancer. So these are dramatic findings. Um, in some ways, they're not unexpected, but 
the important thing is that we in the College of Medicine, but also um, the Department of Health and local public health agencies are very interested in understanding how we can do something about these you know, the causes of these deaths. We know that to a large extent, racial differences in health and also in, in death are driven by social factors, not by genetics. Um, so that that's important because those social factors are things that we can do something about. So how much can you pinpoint which one of those social factors are causing the problems that lead to the, the, the greater mortality? That's a key question and you know it's not one that we could answer in this study because our study was mostly just to kind of measure the condition, measure the problem. So uh, we are ongoing in our efforts to really try to unpack what those community factors are. A lot of our research at WSU is really trying to zero in on that. Some of it we can attribute to things like housing quality. We know that housing, we don't think of that as a health intervention, but actually having poor quality housing is one of the biggest risk factors to developing all kinds of long-term chronic disease conditions. Also things like um, uh, you know, adequ adequate access to um, healthy, clean air, good uh, clean water, and then being able to have access to healthy food. All these things have small effects on a daily basis, but over the life course, especially if you're growing up in these kinds of, uh, you know, impoverished communities, that can lead to long-term um, health problems, including um, ultimately the likelihood that you die prematurely. Pablo Monsivais says his research team will next dig deeper into some of the specifics and start looking for answers to reduce disparities. In the background, we've been continuously working towards measuring neighborhood attributes. And some of it is stuff that people have been looking at for a long time, like, you know, access to your care provider or measuring the quality of your neighborhood in terms of its, you know, walkability or green space. But um, we have to kind of move beyond that. We now, for example, know that stress and lack of sleep can have long-term impacts on health. So we're trying to see how the environments where people live and work can actually have impacts on their chronic stress. And that is something that it's going to take some time to figure out how to measure that because some of it is about how we go through our space and go through our day and interact with um, the social and physical fabric of our neighborhoods. So we are ongoing in our effort to really measure communities in different ways that we think are going to be relevant for human health in the long term. Dr. Pablo Monsivais is an associate professor in WSU's Department of Nutrition and Exercise Physiology, part of the College of Medicine. Sometime this spring, a group called the Spokane Justice Task Force is expected to forward to the county commissioners a recommendation about the county jail, build a new one, renovate the current facility, or something else. As it prepares that recommendation, the task force has been considering some reforms undertaken by the county to reduce the current jail population, and they've been considering other ideas as well. Some of the reforms had been recommended in 2013 by a group of three criminal justice professionals in their Blueprint for Reform report. That group has been reconstituted and is taking a fresh look at the county's criminal justice system seven years later. Last September, we talked with two of the three Blueprint for Reform authors, retired Judge Jim Murphy and attorney Philip Dutch Wetzel. Here was part of our conversation with them. Six years later, uh, as we look back at this, um, what out of that, that list of things that you recommended have been done and what has not been done? 
There, there have been some, some very concrete, positive developments. The um, Law and Justice Council has been reinvigorated. They meet regularly. We thought that there needed to be a, a central uh, clearinghouse, more or less, to handle all the criminal justice issues. And somebody had to have power and somebody had to be nimble because things change very quickly. And th that has been an important thing. The uh, MacArthur Foundation has given us a lot of money to try to study these issues. A recurring uh, and very stubborn issue has been the issue of pretrial detention. About At, at any one time, about 75% of the people in the jail are there uh, pretrial. And about uh, roughly 10% of those are pretrial detainees for misdemeanors. And so I think there are some some things that must be done uh, more quickly to uh, reduce that number. Um, one thing that we committed to early on was that we would not come up with just anecdotes and spout our opinions, but we would work on data. And so um, something that we've found has been a, another stubborn problem is the gathering excuse me, of, of effective data. And this is the issue. So people are in jail for one reason, and that's because a judge has put them there. And we do not have data on what judge is putting the people in jail and for how long and whether those are good decisions. And so we need that data. Concomitantly, the same issue arises with prosecutors. The prosecutor is the driving force for all the detention in this county, and we don't have data on whether those are good decisions and whether the, the, we're getting bang for our buck. And so I think that the, the biggest challenge right now is to gather that data and make uh, good use of it. You used the word stubborn twice, and the first you used it for referring to pretrial and, and whether or not people should be in jail before their trials. Why is there that stubborn that you've, you've referred to? I, I have a lot of opinions, but as I told you, we're not in the business of making opinions. What we need is data. So uh, Criminal Rule 3.2 governs these issues, and they're very difficult decisions. Uh, every day the judges are making very hard decisions. There's a tension between uh, the per, uh, criminal accused's right to be uh, uh, released, right to his liberty, and the protection of the community and the uh, avoidance of risk that a defendant will flee. And so um, the, the rule, thankfully, gives very good guidance on how those issues uh, can be and must be resolved. But whether that rule is, is consistently applied, uh, I, I think that the data is going to show that it's not being consistently applied. And we need that data to illuminate the officers, prosecutors, and judges who are, um, who are not implementing that law. Judge, you, uh, you served both in the district court and in the superior court. Correct. How did you de determine whether or not someone should stay in, in incarceration before their trial or whether you let them go? I tried to follow faithfully the dictates of Criminal Rule 3.2 and 
Dutch has just kind of outlined what those considerations will be. You, you take the average person who comes before a judge and you find that they may have an absolutely clean record. This is their first offense. They've got a job and a family here in town. Pretty easy decision right there. Uh, the criminal rule presupposes that a person shall be released on their own recognizance under circumstances such as that. Beyond that sort of an absolutely clean record, you begin to have compounding factors that a judge must consider in determining whether to release this person. And in the event there are complicating factors, you have a duty to, to try and mitigate those factors by applying less restrictive alternatives to keeping the person in jail. And those less restrictive alternatives may be uh, having the person wear a, an electronic device, have a person uh, report each day. Uh, you may have the person uh, uh, doing any number of things that gives accountability for their whereabouts and uh, whether or not they're following the conditions that have been imposed on them uh, as part of their release. And again, as Dutch said, uh, you consider whether or not they're a, a, a danger to commit a violent felony, whether they are a danger to flee, or whether they are a danger to intimidate witnesses. And basically, those are the three things that you need to consider. Uh, something that really complicates all of this is their criminal history. Uh, usually the first thing the prosecutor says if, he's, if he or she has that information is this person has been uh, warranted before. There, there have been warrants issued for their failure to appear or for any number of reasons. Uh, we need to look at what's behind those warrants, whether they are substantive or whether they are simply ministerial uh, actions that have been taken without the knowledge of the defendant or without the presence of the defendant, without the uh, presence of an attorney, any of those things that may have mitigated against the issuance of that warrant. And indeed, if there was a valid warrant, what can we do this time in order to uh, uh, assure appearance, assure no intimidation of witness, assure that the person isn't going to be committing violent felonies going forward. And you always have that, that presumption that the person should be released on their own recognizance. Uh, beyond that, you begin to work through those. And that's what I tried to do with each defendant I had. One of the big reasons I don't think that's always done is the fear of uh, judicial appearance on the front page of the Inlander or the Spokesman Review when a person is released, subsequently does something that is untoward, and uh, that judge has to run for office. Yeah. Superior Court Judge Jim Murphy and Attorney Philip Dutch Wetzel last September they were recruited, along with former U.S. Attorney Jim McDevitt, to research and write the Blueprint for Reform report in 2013. And now they're back as a group looking again at the county criminal justice system. You can hear our full interview with Murphy and Wetzel at the SPR website. Go to the September 20th edition of Inland Journal.
Patrons at several southeastern Washington and north-central Idaho libraries will no longer have to pay fines for overdue materials. That policy took effect last weekend. This is part of a nationwide trend. Years ago, libraries imposed fines on overdue books as a way to get patrons to return their books on time. But librarians such as Marianne Funk at Lewiston High School say that's a tool that doesn't work as well as it used to. The fine thing we just started to sense was more of a barrier to access to our collections, and it was disproportionately unfair to children and youth and, and families of lower income. Funk's Library is joining libraries in Lapway and Orofino, Idaho, and Clarkston and Asotin, Washington, in abolishing fines. A lot of the libraries across the nation, this has been a national trend, have seen um, an uptick in circulation. More people are coming back. They've, they've actually had long overdue lost items returned because now people aren't, you know, that's not a barrier or something they need to be concerned that, oh my gosh, what will the fine be? The move comes after other major library systems, including Seattle, San Francisco, and Spokane, eliminated fines. In fact, spokeswoman Amanda Donovan says Spokane didn't stop there. At the beginning of the year, the Board of Trustees uh, unanimously voted to forgive all existing overdue fines and clear the counts of over 13,000 customers. Uh, And so that's going to restore borrowing privileges. To, at least, to 212 customers, including 23 children. And so we're really excited to see some of those customers come back in. Donovan says Spokane has also eliminated printing fees for patrons, up to 50 copies a month. So, like, if you need to come print your boarding pass, because um, we were finding that processing credit cards and cash handling and everything for a five-cent copy um, was actually have, have making us lose money and the staff time that, that goes into that sort of thing. Even though the fines are gone, Donovan says there's still a deterrent. So if you keep your books more than 14 days after the due date, they are considered lost. And you have to pay to replace them. Spokane's other library system, the Spokane County Library District, hasn't made that leap yet, but it's thinking about it. Spokeswoman Jane Baker says the district's doing its homework to determine how eliminating fees would affect the budget. We've gone back over the past um, seven, eight years to see how the trend is going and the amount of revenue that does come in from overdue fines has dropped. Uh, it is suspected that a lot of that has dropped because of the use of uh, e-books. Patrons don't have to return e-books. The library takes them back when they're due. Baker says revenue from fines makes up less than 1% of the district's budget. She says the district is surveying users to gauge their opinions about eliminating fines, and then the question of whether to go forward with that may go to its board. We finish on a high note. Nick Deshay has joined Public Radio's Northwest News Network as its Inland Northwest correspondent. He'll be based in the SPR studio in Spokane, but his beat will be eastern Washington and northern Idaho. Deshay comes to Public Radio from the Spokesman Review. Well, you know, I've been a reporter for about 12 years, and I've always been interested in getting into radio. I've tried for a few years to do it on my own and talk to people like you in the radio business, and just could never figure it out. So when the job position came up, I thought it was a great opportunity, and never thought I'd get when I applied, but here I am working as a radio correspondent now. So what is your fascination with radio and wanting to get into radio out of print? You know, it's I'm comfortable with the written word and the, the word in print, but it always fascinated me to, like, how do you deliver news and information just through audio, through sound itself. How do you tell a story through sound rather than just through words? And of course, I've always listened to radio. I've been a long time NPR listener and 
you know, all the other sorts of uh, audio formats. I love the uh, advent of podcasting. I listen to the New York Times daily every day. Uh, and it was just always so alluring to me. So I'm very excited to get moving on it. So when you left The Spokesman, you wrote a column about transportation. Uh, what other things do you like writing about and reporting on? Well, like a lot of reporters, I have a wide interest. Virtually everything gets my curiosity going. Uh, so I covered government and politics for a long time. I do like development and transportation still. Uh, but I always say, you know, um, regardless of what you cover, it's always the human story. You know, it's always somebody dealing with something or people conflicting with each other or, or discovering new ways to do new things. Uh, and that's what really gets me is just telling people stories and hearing them tell, the, tell their stories for their own, which gets back to radio. It's one thing for me to tell their story for them, but to hear it from, in their own voice and in their own words is, is great. You've actually had some practice in, in doing a little bit of this, sort of tinkering around with it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, a few years ago, I did a journalism fellowship at the University of Michigan. And uh, for a lot of the time there, I played with it on my own. I got uh, a little hand recorder I could use. I started playing around with software to, to mani manipulate the sounds. I'd go out and record my own things. And uh, I've played around a little bit, and uh, I always wanted to get it into my journalism. But as you know, it's difficult having a, a full-time job and a day-to-day -day job to kind of integrate these other things that some people don't necessarily want you to do. They want you to just do the job you have. Um, and so I never really got to do it professionally. It was always kind of on in my spare time. So is there one big great radio story that you're looking forward to trying sometime? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm looking forward to try everything. You know, I'm learning everything now. I've done a, a couple voicers, as we call them now, where it's just me doing the reporting and reading them. Uh, I'd look forward to going out and finally collecting some actuality, some people talking and some, some sounds from the real world and putting it in there. But I really want to do something long, something long form. I have a few ideas. But I don't want to scoop myself too much. But uh, if people have read my work, they know I have a great interest in, in local history and how it provides context to what's happening now. Uh, you can't really do that on a daily basis. So the longer projects is where you can slip that in, I think. And so I look forward to, to digging into some, some history and, and how it really relates to today's world. Well, we're looking forward to having you as part of the Inland Journal program. So it's great to have you aboard. Thanks, Doug. I'm glad to be here. Nick Deshay is the new Inland Northwest correspondent for Public Radio's Northwest News Network. He's based in Spokane, but will cover stories all over eastern Washington and northern Idaho. Inland Journal covers issues from that big region, too. You can hear our past programs at the Spokane Public Radio website and subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. Thanks for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik. Hello. I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. <laughs>